Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this bonus episode of OTC. What a pleasure it is to be not just welcoming Andy into the conversation, as always, but our old friend Lars Severson is here because, Lars, this week uh, marks the publication of a unique book, first one out of the blocks, I would have thought, from a proper, proper football journalist. It's the incredible story behind the world's greatest striker. I'll give you three guesses. I'll tell you what, I'll help you with your guess, Andy. He's Norwegian. I was, I was going to say before that, I feel gutted that I didn't get asked to write the book on Kylian Mbappe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're French, obviously, but Lars, uh, Horland, Horland mm-hmm. by Lars Severson yeah. is out this week. It will be talked about, read, I'm sure. It's a great book, by the way. Cover, brilliant. Everything else, Thank brilliant. You. What about the content, though? Yeah. <laughs> Where do we start? Where do we start with the story of Erling Holland, who comes from the same town mm. in Norway as you do. Well, let's start there because that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I was so excited to get to do this is that it is a fairly ridiculous situation when you think about it, given that I've done my best to make a living doing what I do. And then suddenly a kid for, that grew up in the same town as me becomes one of the best players in the world. Like, that is weird, especially given that, I mean, I have to stress, Blina, our hometown, is 12,000 people. It's a very small place. So you'd have bumped into him once or twice along no, the way. No, he's, he's so, much, so much younger than me that not really. Uh, the, and uh, by the time he was an adolescent, I'd lived, left the country and, and stuff like this. But I, obviously he... One of the things I find the most appealing about him is that he seems to be very... He does remember where he comes from, and he's, he talks about it a lot. He brings it up often. He's someone who's very good at referencing and thanking people who's hoped, helped him over the years, his old coaches, stuff like this, and talk about how his upbringing meant a lot to him. And, and that means, uh, for me, I basically get to write... I mean, the first two chapters of the book are basically a love letter to my hometown and, and my hometown club. And that's a very self-indulgent thing to do, but it's actually perfectly legitimate in this case. And that's that's a pretty unique <laughs> position to be in as a football writer. You hardly ever get to do that. Uh, so you'll notice reading the first two chapters that there's a lot of like pretty niche stuff about where we're from uh, that I'm pretty delighted that I'm able to sneak into a mass market uh, book for the English market. But I think it matters. I think trying to set the scene, because it's something that matters a lot to Alan Holland. And so in terms of painting a picture of what kind of guy he is, knowing the culture of the region where he's from is, is very, very relevant. It, it has real impact on, on the kind of guy he is. Well, I remember you said this to me ages ago, actually, way before, I guess, the, the book was even a concept, let alone mm. written last, because we talked about it. And, of course, when he first started really coming to prominence after he left uh, Red Bull Salzburg and joined Borussia Dortmund, that he really started becoming clippable and memeable on, on, on Twitter and started becoming a going concern for, I, I guess, the, the the wider European football-watching public, is he became famous for those interviews mm. that were sometimes a little bit terse. 
after matches and particularly when all eyes were on the Bundesliga post lockdown of course it was the first major league that restarted yeah. um, after after the COVID lockdown and so everyone was watching it for those first three weeks or month or, or, or whatever and Holland's post-match interviews quickly became a thing of legend and people said what an unusual bloke <laughs> and I, I remember like talking to you about this and he said there's nothing wrong with it. It's just from Brenner. Yeah, no. That what, is, what, 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 what did you mean by that? But being, I'd say being slightly taciturn and not using more words than you have to is very typical of people from that part of the world. You can tell Apart why. From you. you can tell why I had to emigrate. Like clearly, I'm not, there's, there's no place for me. My mother's from the east part of Norway, so I'm sort of fifty-fifty there. But if you ever meet my father, you know he's a bit Holland-esque in the sense that straight to the point, no, no wasted words. You know, you say what you mean and you mean what you say, and no need to elaborate anything really. And that is very much the culture. So he's from a part of Norway that is quite different to other parts of Norway, just geographically. If you ever fly to Stavanger, you'll likely come in from the south. And if it's a clear day out the right side of your window, you'll notice that the geography changes. The sort of craggy mountains of southern Norway gives way to a large sort of lowland uh, plain. It's all flat, which very few parts of Norway are. And this is why uh, the farmers, it's farmland. Exactly right. Because this uh, airstrip of land was sort of ground down by the glaciers towards the end of the last ice age. And the glaciers left an uncommonly thick layer of soil which means it's a good place to grow stuff. Uh, but they also left a ton of rocks <laughs> in the ground. Uh, so you have, uh, it's basically the best place in Norway to grow stuff. You have a long, longer planting season because of the Gulf Stream and all this sort of stuff. You've got good soil for that sort of thing. But it comes at a cost, which is that uh, every spring before planting anything, well, every before planting anything, you had to clear the field of, of rocks, which before the advent of machinery was pretty hard work. You know? And and the, the the cruel thing here is that next year there are more rocks popping up, like the, the soil is pushing rocks towards the surface. So it was a, an area of the country where you can make a good living for yourself as a farmer, but you had to work hard. That wasn't optional. Like it was very, it was literally backbreaking work, uh, lifting these damn rocks out of the ground uh, all the time. And of course geographically we're just on the coast there so all the weather systems from the North Sea like we've got no mountains shielding us from anything so all the weather comes in and just really batters us so there's a lot of sideways rain uh, in in the island so it, it it grew it sort of it shaped people in the sense that it, it uh, bred uh, a culture of sort of ruggedness and hard work and diligence uh, of uh, of knowing that you can succeed if you work for it, but you will definitely not if you don't. Like there are no shortcuts at all, uh, and that that I think you should always be a little bit careful with regional stereotypes. But I think that mentality there is some of that uh, still to this day is that people uh, you get up get up early and work hard and uh, and, and and never get carried away. I think if things as I spoke to one local historian as quoted in the book saying, you know, if things are good today, they could be very bad tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you can always be on your guard. <laughs> yeah, it's no doll's house, as Henry Ibsen would say. <laughs> However, um, is there part of that in the Holland that we see? Is there part of the directness, for example? Yeah. Uh, because football seems very, very direct. Mm -hmm. The hard-working um, ethos that you mentioned, clearing all the rocks and everything, yeah. get up early and work hard, is that in him as a footballer. And finally, just this last part that you mentioned a moment ago, uh, um, is, is he of the mentality that even if things are great today and we're winning the Premier League and we're winning the Champions League and whatnot, 
it could be terrible tomorrow. And no, you, does that affect his football? I, I think it really does. And I think, well, first of all, it's a part of his identity that he's very happy and proud to flag up. I mean, you must have seen the photo of him sort of sitting topless on an old tractor. Like he, he does when he goes home and spends time. I mean, he... It, he has friends who, who who lives on farms. You know, he he knows this 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 type of uh, life, and I think it has influenced him because he's always been extremely hardworking. I mean, this is the thing you notice when you speak to his youth coach and teacher and people who knew him when he was young is that he always had a drive. A lot of kids say they're going to be footballers, but you know, there was something behind it with him. Uh, it's something I've seen he, the clips. Of yeah. him, you know, when he's a kid yeah. playing uh, football, and he looks like the one who. It means everything to that he's definitely going to score. And yeah. if he doesn't score, he's devastated. And it's something Alfie has flagged up, actually, as well, is that it wasn't just what he was prepared to do. It was what he was prepared to give up. He understood that he had to, you know, he, he if he wanted to reach his goals, there are certain consequences of wanting to reach your goals. You have to put in more hours than, than other people. And that's something he's always been more willing to do. And And I think that's sort of of accepting the necessity of hard work I think is something that was with him from a very young age and 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 being curious about what you can do to better yourself I mean he was talking about biohacking when he was still a teenager he was he was talking about what he can do to perfect his physique you know and get the perfect body for what he wants to do on the pitch he at a fairly early age, started well, as in his late teens, certainly when he was starting to sort of nineteen, breaking through the national team. People started noticing he was wearing like goggles in the evening to to restrict the sort of blue light, so he would sleep better. You know, he has this idea that if your eyes are ex- exposed to too much blue light in the evening, it, it can impact your sleep. So whether that works, wrong or choice not, of club, maybe. Well, well, whether that works or not is almost immaterial. The point is that it's it's fascinating that even as you know, he was I think it was son in eighteen nineteen when he was doing that stuff. He, he's been incredibly focused on bettering himself and, and very driven and never expected to get anything for free anywhere. And, and th- that, that is definitely something that comes from that sort of farmer's mentality, I'd say. But when you talk about that, that seems slightly juxtaposed to, for me, maybe the most interesting bit of the book is where you talk to his former youth coach. Mm. And we have a, a lot of information fed to us about, you know, how... Uh, young sports people should be developed these days and the idea that they should start really young and be hothoused and Mm. almost like take adult decisions at an age where it's far too early and stuff becomes like I think that stuff becomes pretty serious pretty Mm. quickly for aspiring young sports people doesn't it but actually he wasn't streamed if you like if you're putting it in an academic sense until quite late. Tell us about yeah. the thinking behind that and, no, and tell us about the man who had such an influence. Well, on that's him. a really interesting point and that's a counterpoint to what I just said, I suppose, is that you're very familiar with what just Andy said from if, if you have a kid here in England in particular and some other countries as well, people are sort of, they're almost told you, you have to be super serious by the time you're 10, 11, 12 years old if you're going to make it. Now, in England, it's quite a densely populated place. Wherever you live in England, you can probably pick and choose a little bit in terms of what f- football club you send your kids to. This is not always the case in Norway. Like Norway is a pretty, most people in Norway live in small towns dotted around the country where really only one sort of semi-big city and a few medium-sized cities. And then most Norwegians live in small towns. And frequently there'll be one football club. Like in Brynä, it's a town of 12,000 people. There's one football club. So if you run that football club, um, and this is something uh, I had, a, my favorite part of the book really, is we had a long chat with uh, Alfinger Bansen, who's his, uh, who was Alling Holland's youth coach from, he was eight, till he was about 15, 16. Um, 
he said that him him and his team of coaches they really sat down and thought about this and thought why are we why do we have a youth department in this football club what what is this for what are we doing what's the primary purpose of of putting on football training sessions and games for kids in this place and and that isn't actually to to get the biggest talents and sort of lift them up it is to provide a safe environment for kids to play football and stay active and develop as human beings the human development has to be at the center of it and they tried to devise uh, a concept in which they were inclusive in which uh, and you know they had a group of 40 kids that stayed together for for basically 10 years very very few f- fell there was some exchange but yeah they had a group that was together for a very long time and they had a huge focus on spending the same amount of time on the best kid as they did on on the 40th best kid and the 39th best kid and that you have to see everyone and they had a, they had three rules which they stuck to which was you have to you have to be on time you have to try your best and you have to behave yourself those three are just completely set in stone and then the football stuff comes on top of that now that doesn't mean you can't uh, develop players properly they had something like five players from that group of 40 ended up being youth internationals at some stage so it was an incredible group of of young players and Aling Holland of course being the most famous of them but the point is they also had kids there who are plumbers now and play in like the seventh tier or maybe don't play at all and just to have normal lives. And they play together for a very, very long time. And you can, for football can be a positive arena for everyone. And that doesn't necessarily have to stop the most talented kids from developing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm glad you said Erling Haaland because uh, many people will call this book Haaland. Mm. And, um, and they're not too fidgety about that. And, and they'll, be, they're... they'll be wondering why I call you Lars and Andy calls you Lars. Um, but well, that's because you call me as if I was Swedish. Well, <laughs> but that's and, fine. And of course, if we're talking Sweden, we'll talk August Stringberg, who mm. is the equivalent, of course, of Henrik Ibsen. Uh, Henrik Ibsen being the Norwegian, Strindberg being the Swede. And Strindberg's famous book was Farden, mm-hmm. Farden, or in English, The Father. Mm. And we can't escape, can we, when we talk of Erling Haaland, uh, as from talking about his dad. It, did he have an advantage in that? Um, his father was already a successful professional footballer. Um, certainly an advantage over all the other kids when he was growing up, but arguably even today, is that his advantage? Okay, so that, there are two aspects of that, right? He had some genetical advantages. You, you can't get away from that. Now, obviously, he has done an incredible job perfecting his physique, but he had certain advantages from nature as well. And that, of course, you have a father who's a professional athlete. That's yes. But 
He also had a mother who, at the age of 18, was the Norwegian champion in her age group at the heptathlon. Oh, which is gracious. Which, which I mean, Dalton will know, but for those who, are, those who don't, I mean, the female uh, heptathlon is the 100-meter hurdles, the high jump, the shot put, the 200-meter dash, the long jump, the javelin throw, and the 800-meter run. So it's a sort of, it's a seven event. And the thing about it is, if you're a national champion at that, you, you, you're a pretty serious sports person. Like, you, you need an incredibly balanced physique, a combination of uh, strength and ex- explosive acceleration you need to have the focus to get good at like sure, throwing the javelin that's like a technique you can't just pick up you have to work on that so to, to be in the national elite at that at, at 18 is like you, you clearly are quite a significant serious athlete that's on the mother's side and I looked this up on the sort of Brune Athletics Club and this is just locally but the local athletics club on their website they have like a records uh, all time records for various age groups and it's funny because some of them were set in the 80s by Arling Holland's mum but a few of them were set in the 60s by Arling Holland's grand mother on the mother's side wow. as well. So she was also yeah, quite a physical specimen, uh, as uh, apparently. And of course, his great uncle is Gabriel Hoyland, who is the best ever player in Bruno's history. Uh, so, so there's quite a lot of genetical you know, advantages. And he's born into a family who, who, who know what it takes to be an elite performer. I mean, put it that way. So that was obviously an advantage. And the other thing that his youth coach, um, Mr. Lofin Banson, speaks about is that when it got to the point when he's in his teens and he's being picked for the various age groups for Norway and and there's a bit of buzz building and he's being noticed, that's the point where having a father who's played professionally is a huge advantage for knowing how to handle, you know, agents certainly becoming interesting and scouts looking at you and your first move to, to, to another club and how you fit into a dressing room and when the time comes to move abroad, how do you handle that? Obviously, having a father who's gone through it is is very, very helpful in that regard. It's always felt, hasn't it, like he's had a career plan in that sense. Every stage from when he left Norway. So Salzburg was a stage. Mm. Dortmund was a very carefully chosen and curated stage yeah. when he yeah. had other big offers that, that he could have, have taken. All building up to Manchester City. Mm. And Pep in, Guardiola. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. In, in your view, Lars, how much did... And, and, I guess talking about the Guardiola thing as as well that Don brought up, how much did Alfie's history at Manchester City play into the decision to go to City or not at all? Not a huge one, I don't think. It makes it extra nice, I'm sure. Obviously, they're human. There's an emotional... You've all seen the photos of him being a kid. And and you know making his first little runs and kicking a ball in a man Man City. I mean he was he grew up in a in a Man City household in that sense. You know because because mm-hmm. uh, uh, Alling uh, Alfie had just moved to to City when Alling was born. I think I've got my dates correct. So it was round about it was the same summer. Uh, and emotionally that has a pull. But the thing about him and transfers. Naturally, now there's a lot of talk of money in in Norway, in particular. It's like, oh, they made this much money, they made that much money. But I think it's interesting that his first three transfers from Bruna to Molde, Molde to Salzburg, Salzburg to Dortmund, in all three cases they could have moved to a bigger club for more money. In all three of them, they, they didn't pick the most lucrative option. They didn't pick the biggest sort of most prestigious club. All three of those moves, they went to the place where they felt 
he would develop the best. You know, Molde in Norway have a proven history of developing young players and getting them moves abroad. That's something they've done for a while. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was there, of course. Solskjaer had a lot of faith in, in Holland and they kind of felt that this is this is the right move. Salzburg, we know, is this sort of great conveyor belt of talent. They identify teenagers here and there and it's a great finishing school for the for the bigger leagues in Europe. And and when it came to move away from Salzburg at that point, because of his exploits in the Champions League, most of the big clubs were, were interested. Uh, but they felt Dortmund was right in part, in a huge part, because they didn't have a striker. Like there was no striker at Dortmund at the time. Uh, so Dortmund just uh, went straight to, to Holland and said, listen, we, we need you. We, there's a big empty hole in our team where you should be. Just And they were very direct and say, we, we, we need you in our team. And I think he'd, um, I, I think he is someone who, let me put it this way, my impression is that the route that someone like Martin Odegaard took of going to Real Madrid very early, being in the reserves for a while, going on loan here, there and everywhere, I'm not sure that would have suited Alling Hall in the same way. You think he didn't have the patience for it? And I think he... The challenge of playing senior football at quite a young age, of being in the centre of things, of, of, of getting that experience, I think that meant a lot to him. He said that. He did an interview in the autumn when he was starting to really break through at Salzburg, was scoring in the Champions League. And one of the things he said about this club, Salzburg, is that what they're giving me, I, you can't get I, the experience. You can't buy experience. Like You have to experience mm. it. Uh, playing in the Champions Leagues, playing in front of a crowd, you know, playing men's football... The, that is different from playing in the reserve somewhere, even if the club you're in the reserves of is one of the biggest in the world. You know, it just isn't the same. And for him, I think that was the perfect route. I was at City at the weekend and um, in amongst, you know, you always look at the shirts that people are wearing when you're on the way to and from the ground. Mm. There's almost been, in some Manchester City fan circles, a sort of reappraisal of Alfie Holland <laughs> because <laughs> you see a lot of like actually quite young kids, uh, teenagers, wearing like vintage shirts. And yeah, vintage shirts are one thing, but vintage shirts with Haaland 15 on the back, <laughs> with his dad on the back. If there's been a slight reappraisal, obviously cloaked in significant gratitude for him, I guess, producing and delivering this amazing well, I mean, striker, the best striker in the world. Has there been a reappraisal of Alfie Haaland and his standing in Norwegian football? Well, I don't know about that. I think in terms of his standing in Norwegian football... It is affected a little bit by the fact that he was here when we had so many players in England. I mean, there was just there was a bunch, there were a bunch of them at mm. the time. I mean, now because the sport is so globalized and the clubs are scouting everywhere and it's also streamlined and the Premier League is sort of almost morphed into the NBA of football. It feels at times having a Norwegian in this league is very exciting. We don't have that many, and we know, we accept that as a small country, we're never going to have that many. But in like the mid to late nineties, there were a bunch. Like they were all over the gaff. Uh, so so Alfie Holland being at North. Forest and Leeds and then Manchester City yeah it was cool but like you you know I, I think you had Solskjaer at United and you had Tor Andre Flo at Chelsea and like there, there, there were there were guys we were kind of used to seeing our people on the telly at the weekend um, but I think I, I remember just again as a kid growing up in Brune didn't register massively that he was playing in England but it did register a lot that he was in the World Cup squad for 94 I remember as a very I will have been seven years at the time seven years old and I remember thinking it was incredible that someone from our little town was in the national team like that that kind of blew my mind when we were sat up at night watching the games from from America and 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 watching him be on the field uh, for Norway halfway across the world I remember watching that as a seven-year-old and thinking that was pretty amazing I don't doubt that Turandi Flo was an influence as a center forward different type 
type of player. I mean, you can't compare Erling Haaland <laughs> to any other centre forward that there's ever been. No. Is he aware of the history? It feels like when you give us this book now, that we're on the cusp of what's to come. Mm. Um, and yet, his first season in the Premier League, it, we were looking at records being broken. Uh, Dixie Dean has only just about got his record, uh, kept his record of being, you know, top scorer in the top flight in English football ever. <laughs> only just retained that in yeah. his first season. It feels like we ain't seen everything yet. No, I, I would I would concur with that. And is I think he aware? Is he aware of that? Does he, he feel that? You get the sense that he's quite uh, aware of numbers, and you know he's someone who, if he scores, if he scores a hat trick, but there's twenty minutes left, he's not happy to be substituted because you know like, there could be more goals. What about there. if he doesn't score? What about if he doesn't score? Well, he gets, is he aware he gets, of those numbers. He gets quite cross. You can tell. He's I mean, and we've seen this recently. We've had a couple of weeks now of him missing more chances than we're used to seeing, and he's been quite frustrated with himself. That's another thing I find very likable about him is that he's not subtle in terms of his body language on the pitch. You can tell <laughs> can tell more or less exactly what he's thinking or what, where his mood is at. Uh, he, he doesn't hide things very well. But I I do like again. I like the fact that he's definitely something who's aware of numbers. He's definitely someone who wants to get the most out of his career and do do the most he can. But he isn't selfish. And I think getting being those two things at the same time is, is difficult. And you'll notice, I think he could be more selfish. You know, he scored a great shot against uh, Brighton, was it? The, the, the big drive from outside the box fairly yeah. recently. I remember looking that up. That was his first shot from outside the box this season. And this is the thing. Huh. He, he has a pretty good shot on him when he can line him up. I wouldn't like to be the goalkeeper that but, 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 but he hardly ever takes these shots yeah. from range because he always looks around and always looks for if he's got a teammate who's in a better position, he will pass, right? So for someone who's a, who is a striker, who is a thoroughbred goal scorer, he is surprisingly selfless on the field. And and I do wonder, maybe that's the kind of guy he is and maybe that's the guy kind of guy he always was going to be. But I wonder if you can trace that back to to an extent to when he was young and and, and playing in uh, the youth team where they were very focused on developing people as team players. You know, I I kind of, we went through that a little bit quickly and you'll hopefully you'll read it in the book, but one of the things they did with this group of 40 kids is that they hardly, they didn't put the best kids into one team. Like they tried to have even teams initially in training and for a long time in games as well. Like when they were going to play small-sided games in training, they, they looked at, okay, which kids were the most developed and the most talented, and they split them all up and put them all on different teams so that they would have to get used to having teammates who weren't quite as good as them, and they would have to get used to taking a little bit more responsibility, and they would have to get used to not always getting the perfect pass back. And and if they got annoyed with their less talented teammates, that was one of the things they'd really get told off for. So with that in mind, do you think it's a genuine joy for him to play for this Manchester City team? No, for sure. And, and, and this is something you've seen at City and at Dortmund, is that he, as much as he celebrates his own goals, he sometimes celebrates other players' goals. I mean, sometimes, like you say at Dortmund in particular, you have many uh, clips of like Jaden Sancho scoring and just this giant blonde man just almost like murdering it, like jumping over. Like, yeah, you gotta be careful. <laughs> like he's, there's, there's really no sort Ima- of. Imagine if you're Phil Foden, and I've seen him celebrate <laughs> with Phil Foden yeah, as well. Exactly right, and yeah. uh, and he, he, you can say that that sort of the joy is completely un, un, uncontained when his teammates score as well. So obviously, this is only story so far. There's going to be a second book. What do you expect to be writing on? <laughs> what, damn, what, what, do, what do you expect to be writing about Holland doing in five years' time? Oh, that's interesting. Good question. So my feeling right now, 
and, and this is just speculation, but I guess it's vaguely informed speculation. My sense is that things the city had has gone even better than they were expecting so far. Not just in sense, obviously they've won everything, which is fun, and he's broken records, which is also fun. But there's one key aspect of this, which is he stayed fit. Because at, at Dortmund, he was starting to pick up more injuries than you'd like to see. And, and I, I suspect that's something that worried them a little bit. Mm. And, it frustrated and, him as well, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, did. And, and, and they are actually on the record saying this now, that it was something they had to consider in terms of moving to England because it is a physically tough league. He's spoken about how in England there are more games because you have an extra cup competition. Uh, so uh, VR Play did a very good documentary about his sort of deciding to go to City where they got some really good footage and some chat with him when he talks about how, you know, if I'm going to play every game in England plus every game for the national team, that's a, that's a lot of games. And, and, I, and I think given the fact that he had started to pick up some injuries at Dortmund, that was a concern. But what we've seen since he's gone to City is that he's hardly ever injured. Like the the, phys- the physios at City have done an incredible job keeping him fit. Uh, Pep is giving... is you know, doesn't take him off as that often, which I think is good. I'm sure there's a bit of, I'm sure Pep would like to rest him a little bit, but then he has to consider that he doesn't want to be rested and that that's a whole balancing act to deal with that because he wants to score as many goals as he can. Uh, but they've done such a good job on his body at Manchester City, clearly keeping him fit for as much. And I think that makes it more viable to stay at City longer than perhaps would have been the plan. Because I'm, Again, speculation, but I suspect he is someone who's more likely to want to experience different things uh, in his career. But that can change if if you find a place where you're really happy. And right now it's working incredibly well. I thought you'd be saying that in five years' time he'll be married with kids and putting his feet well, up. He could be well, that, true. But, but I don't think he's the kind of guy who's going to put his feet up anytime soon. Well, no. But if this was the normal OTC, we mm. would be asking you to end... Uh, the conversation with a Game of the Week recommendation. Of all the matches that Mm. Erling Haaland has played, which is the one that you think he would go for as a Game of the Week? Or if you prefer, which is the one you would go for? Which is one that you would go for? So I would, there is, so there's two, I have two sort of favourite Erling Haaland games, really. Um, So let's let's do the first one first, which is, Really before people were aware of him, this will be back in the summer of, of 2018, uh, when he was 17 years old, and Mulder, he was playing for Mulder at the time, he'd started getting minutes from Mulder's senior team. Solskjaer really believed in him, like Solskjaer believed in him all the way. But at that time, not everyone like who watched Norwegian football were fully convinced, because he was, he was only starting to come into his body. He'd had a big growth spurt. You know, he could look a bit clumsy back then, because you know when you suddenly grow a number of inches and your touch isn't quite right, and you know, everything's a bit weird. So you could tell that he had something, but he hadn't started scoring a lot of goals. He was missing chances. Solskjaer insisted, you know, this kid's going to go far. But a lot of other people was like, not sure about this. And they were playing away to Brann, uh, which is a team from Bergen in Norway. Brann that season had a particularly mean defense. They'd hardly conceded any goals. Uh, they had a Costa Rican international and a former Dutch international at center half, a really sort of elbow first, ask questions later type of center <laughs> half pairing. And Erling Haaland has spoken about this later. He'd had a terrible week in training. Like, the shooting practice, nothing goes in. You know, can't even get the passes right and passing just Nothing works. And again, he said this, like he was almost on the verge of tears, like nothing's going for him. And then towards the end of the week, Solskjaer just kind of comes over and quietly says, gave me way to Brand with weekend. I think that's one for you. I think we're going to start you. 
And the captain of the t- at the time, Ruben Gabrielsen, has also spoken about saying, this was crazy, we can't do this, we can't, this is wrong. And, and, and tried to talk his coach out of it, basically. <laughs> and, and says they were sat in the dressing room ahead of the game thinking, wow, this is, this is a tough game to begin with. We're going to be, yeah, this is, this is not going to be easy. And, <laughs> and Ali Holland scored four goals in, I think, 23 minutes or something like this. <laughs> he just went completely wild and, uh, yeah, scored four goals. And it, it was just a real breakthrough for him. And, and and after that, he started scoring and just never looked back really in terms of Norway and, and went abroad pretty quickly. And it just came almost out of nothing. But that kind of highlights Solskjaer's role. I guess Solskjaer's sort of legacy as a manager in this country might be a bit spotty after the way things went at United. But that was, you know, that was quite a call by Solskjaer to have this sort of very unpolished gem who wasn't in a good place, and they were playing a particularly brutal away game, and he thought, "No, no, this is this is this is your moment," and he was rewarded by with four goals, <laughs> and uh, and it's, it was one of the first. And, well, and, it's certainly the first game when you look at it and thought, "Okay, well, the, this guy has a high ceiling, certainly." And the second match, well, it's, that's might still be my favorite Alan Holland moment, which is the second goal against PSG in the Champions League yes. for Dortmund. Yes. Because he'd just signed for Dortmund. Obviously, he'd scored a lot of goals at Salzburg. He'd, the summer before, he'd scored nine against Honduras. And, he, you know, his legend was starting to build. But they were still, well, you've scored goals in Norway and in Austria and against some very confused Hondurans. I mean, this doesn't really count. And uh, oh, there's a lot of tap-ins. And, yeah, he still had a lot of doubters. And then you come up against PSG in the Champions League. And the first goal is a typical sort of Alling Holland uh, tap-in uh, that he sort of, yeah, he, he's got a nose for. But the second one, he just whacks it in the top corner corner was left foot and it's one of those you can hear the ball hit the goal and he tries to go into the lotus position when he celebrates but he's got so much momentum that he just falls over and he's just kind of buried by everyone and you can see on his face where he's also like I have no idea how what just happened it's just the most crazy yeah. sadly I wasn't there but I remember it was one of those where I was just jumping up and down and laughing in the sitting room like what did he just do like what is happening you know if this was OTC I'd have to ask you finally what what would he eat what's his food pairing uh, with this one I'm really interested is, is it Luke okay. Fisk so he has two places in particular that he used to go in Brune for sort of like guilty pleasures when he was young one of which there's two Chinese places in Brune one of them is called Wenhua House and it's uh, it's known for serving particularly large portions <laughs> which is obviously Ali Holland's favourite place if you're ever in Brune very basic Chinese food but massive portions and they've got a few signed shirts on the wall there with Ali Holland so you have to go there he's also a fan of a kebab pizza Okay. Uh, from a fast food shop called I'll, Yummy Time. I think I'll see him at the Chinese, not getting to the food <laughs> with him. Okay, just to let you know, the book is Holland by our friend and guest Lars Severson. It's the incredible story behind the world's greatest striker. It's published by Ebri Spotlight Press at £22. Yeah, and... If you are one of these people who prefer to get your literature through your ears rather than through your eyes, and the audiobook is also out Ooh. and, and uh, read by me. Uh, so, <laughs> who else? Yeah, exactly right. So, if you'd like to hear me read the audiobook. Unless you'd like uh, me to do it and you'd prefer the Swedish and the Norwegian. That would have been very different. <laughs> On the Continent is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.